Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code EQUITY. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make Equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechRunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined by Danny Crichton, who's also in springtime with me. Danny, the East Coast is warm and alive and it is a good thing. It's 51 degrees, the coffee's been delivered, the toast is in the oven, everything is magical. And that was foreshadowing, which you'll all understand very, very shortly. But first, we had Natasha Mascarenas, who is in sunny California. How are you doing? I'm just hopping along, which is also <laughs> foreshadowing the entire yeah. show. No one needs to listen. End the show now. Yep, that's pretty much all the news. And if that wasn't funny to you, well, just listen on and you'll get why it's humorous. Just to kick everyone off, we had a lot of stuff we had to cut this week. There was so much news, so many funding rounds, acquisitions, IPOs, and so forth. So just to give everyone a quick kind of rundown of what we kept, we're going to drop a couple of notes on news that broke late this week. We're going to talk about the world of community, both executives and funding rounds. We have notes about the Toast IPO that could be coming later this year. And of course, we have Phoenix, which we can't get away from. It's going to be lots of fun. But Danny, this morning, ruining our morning schedules was the Coinbase S1 filing drop. Give me your first impressions. Obviously, the company's done just extraordinarily well. You look at the top line revenue numbers up, I think about 240% total year over year from like, what, 480 to 1.1 billion total revenue in just 12 months. It's totally insane if you look at the numbers. And in particular, like quarter over quarter, the growth is just incredible in 2020. Alex, you wrote up a story with all the numbers in there. Yeah. So one thing that really stood out to me was the fact that in 2019, the company had about 533 million in revenue. In Q4 of 2020, it had 585 million in revenue. In one quarter. Yeah. In one quarter. So the company was bigger in the last quarter of 2020 than it was in all of 2019. It goes to show how much activity there was in terms of cryptocurrency trading, activity, consumer demand for it. And Coinbase is making real money, not adjusted. It is even, really uh, making real money. Like actual gap net income. In the story I saw this morning, because I'm also just catching up on Coinbase deciding to make all the news, was that it generates most of its revenues through transactions instead of subscription and services. Was that a surprise to either of you or does that mean anything more than what it means? Yes and no. So no, I'm not surprised that most Coinbase revenue was transaction-based. I think that I expected roughly what we saw in terms of subscription software revenues, but I didn't think trading revenue was going to be so high. So it ended up being a relatively immaterial portion of its revenue. I think it was about 20 million in Q4 out of 585. So a single digit percentage. The growth is impressive, up from like 7 million in Q120, but it's just not that large compared to the rest of the stack of incomes they had. The other key piece, like a bank, it's a fees business, right? So the hard part here and what's complicated with Coinbase is it's so driven by trading and day traders and the amount that you're washing through different types of cryptocurrencies. These fees are highly variable. If you focus on banks, you know, okay, they make money on checks, they make money on wire transfers. Like there are, of course, fluctuations across the year in different economies, but like in general, most banking kind of is consistent from month to month to month to month. Coinbase, I mean, it's obviously surging because crypto is surging massively right now. I think one of the big open questions is, okay, if all or a huge percentage of your money is revenue generated from fees, like it's amazing when crypto is hot. It sucks when there's a crypto winter yep. and Coinbase can't afford a crypto winter. Yeah. And we saw an example in one of their charts. We saw the declines in monthly active traders, Natasha. 
they declined from a peak in 2018 to a nadir in kind of Q1 2019. And so we've seen declines in their activity. It's going to be tough. It's going to be interesting to see. One of the things that's particularly interesting with this company is USV, which co-led the Series A back in 2013 and is one of the earliest investors in the company, actually sold off a very large percentage of its holdings over the last two years. So according to the S1 filing from Coinbase, USV actually sold off about 28% of its total uh, holdings in Coinbase over the last two years, mostly to other investors around the cap table, namely Paradigm and Andreessen Horowitz. And so it actually sold that for about 140 million bucks. Those shares at the current price would be worth something in the couple of billion range to get you a sense <laughs> of how much of a scale, you know, difference it is. And about two years ago, Fred Wilson had this blog post where he talks about taking money off the table that like with these fund sizes, with the amount of money they put in, they made a huge multiple on invested capital on these investments, even at that price point. But like, it's insane to see how high the stock is going at the IPO and how much USV really left on the table. Another data point is that we were not going to talk about crypto on today's show that was quite literally cut out of the script on our prep day. And it made its way into our show anyways, which means it's getting to a point where we have to bring up crypto each week. (laughs) And that's a different world than it has ever been. No, no, it's 2017 all over again. You guys weren't on the show, but we had to endure the entire ICO boom under the ages of equity. NFTs only. Now it's NFTs. (laughs) NFTs are coming up on equity. We've heard, we have seen, we have listened. We know about those things. Yes. I will fund you. No. A couple of other quick things before we jump into the actual show. This is all preamble. DigitalOcean filed to go public this morning. We are not talking about that. There is stuff on the side about it if you're so curious. And also TechCrunch Justice is coming up on March 3rd. That's going to be amazing. And then also TechCrunch Early Stage is coming up on April 1st and 2nd. I am interviewing the chief revenue officer of Zoom for that. So that should be a real blast. And with that, Danny, we're going to start the actual topics. We're going to talk about Hopin, which you broke some news about this week. That's right. So Hopin, which I wrote with our London-based correspondent, Steve O'Hare, we heard from sources that the company is raising a new round of venture capital at a 5 to $6 billion valuation. And that's up from about $2.125 billion in November. So to get a sense of this three months ago. So this is a company that has raised a seed, I believe, in early 2020, an A in August, a B in November, And now in February is what I've been told is actually quite closed for a Series C round of about $400 million total capital invested. That's a lot of money. But the backstory here, guys, and Natasha, you've used Hopin a bunch because we actually use Hopin here at TechCrunch. And overall impressions, good product? Yeah, I mean, it's great. I think from the beginning, I've kind of been like, it can't stop there. Like, it's not in any way the dream. Yep. But it is maybe first and has good marketing and did it. So it works. And that sentiment has been enough to drive it from zero to 20 million ARR the last time that I covered it. And now apparently up to 60 million ARR, which means it's going to be at 100 million ARR in 48 minutes. And then it's going to be IPO scale by Q3. Like, I mean, th- this company is just, it, it feels like it, you ever watch those time-lapse movies and they speed it up and all of a sudden you see the ants like build the whole mountain really quick. That's hopping. I actually messaged it to a friend and I was like, this feels like Brex in some way, like Brex just raising rounds right, left and center for fun. And they were just like, well, Hoppin actually makes money. We don't know about Brex. Hey-o. <laughs> and I was like, it's not the best comparison, but it's just like, it feels very 2019, also very 2021. To avoid getting a DM from Enrique over at Brex, uh, Brex <laughs> does make money. They make money off of Interchange. Now, we don't know if they're profitable. And certainly, they're two different kind of companies. One is a SaaS-based software company, Hopin. One is a kind of like Interchange-based, oh, Danny, what would we call it? Revolving credit line for SMBs and different verticals company. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Accurate. Anyways, we're going to leave Hoppin behind because, I mean, my Lord, but I'm sure it'll be back on the show in three weeks when that all clears up. But a shout out Denny and Steve for breaking that and making their day lightly worse. Next up, we have Reddit raising more money. Natasha, I thought they just raised money. What the hell's going on here? I had a little scoop this week with Reddit adding $100 million to that round that broke two weeks ago. We knew that Reddit had raised $250 million Series E earlier this month. Now they have added $116 million. Same valuation. Okay. And we still don't know the investors or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see that Reddit obviously has been doing work since we last talked to them. And when I asked the spokesperson, they said it just happened after we announced it. Wow. I don't really know anything else to add. (laughs) 100 million cash. Somehow magically, three minutes after we gave the announcement about 250 million and another 116 million just wired into the bank account. (laughs) With no knowledge whatsoever, but apparently the round size could go up to 500 million according to the SEC form. So, I mean, clearly Reddit is raising a huge amount of money. We know that they've raised, what, 800 million altogether so far. So this is a prodigious amount of money going into the company. Which tells us a lot because I've always, so I'm a long, long old Reddit user. I've been on for like 10, 12 years or something at this point in time. My account's ancient, but I've never thought about Reddit as a particularly strong revenue generating entity. It's never been a business that I've been like, it's going to crush it. It's a very important bit of the internet for good or ill, depending. But this amount of money implies to me that it must be doing something very good from a business perspective. I know they're doing some live streaming stuff. They've introduced more gifts you can give other users. They, of course, do ads. But I didn't know that that added up to such a lucrative opportunity for investment. You know, so color me surprised. Yeah, I mean, I think the power of Reddit has never been more clear. So people might just be betting on the power of it. We saw it with GameStop during the election. And also Reddit came into the news when they lost their co-founder, Alexis Ohanian, who stepped off the board over moderation concerns, which is now filled by YC's Michael Seibel. So it has always been very important to the world, at least in the recent past, but people are now more aware of the impact it can have on public conversation beyond the corner of the internet. Well, and it's sustainability. I mean, if you think about it, it's one of the oldest social networks. It's still widely, widely popular. And yes, it's always been a little bit smaller. It's never made the kind of money that Facebook or Twitter has made, but somehow it just keeps on going. Part of that, I think, is because community is just so important. And while you have all these memes on Reddit, and some companies may even have like a chief meme officer instead of a CMO, Natasha, you were talking recently about that more and more companies are starting to think of community as sort of the end result of what they're building, creating something you dubbed, or I guess some companies are dubbing the chief community officer. (laughs) I know you hate it, Danny. I really hate the term. Chief community (laughs) officer. It sounds like some bad town hall position, but what is the sort of mentality here? Like, why are companies building this out? During the pandemic, but also for so many years, companies have bet that their communities, whether it's an Airbnb hosted dinner or a Slack group about early stage funding, have the power to do some real good damage. You have an entire community rallying around you. And the perception of community is, okay, this isn't just about a Slack group or that single event. It's an aggregation of all these different worlds and seeing how they can eventually turn into the customer base of a company one day. The chief community officer point came up in a recent story I wrote about Comsor. Very cool, invested in by 776, which is Alexis Ohanian's early stage fund. Comsor is trying to prove the value of community. So they're trying to say, hey, listen, when three Google engineers are on your GitHub, maybe it's time that you reach out to them with the sales contract. And here's the efficiency in that way. That sounds like exactly the kind of community I want to join. (laughs) 
the kind of community where as soon as you start to partake in it, they send you a sales contract. It's a fair point. It's a difficult balance. It's a difficult balance. Does that but sound I do like think the kind like of cynicism we need on Thursdays? Community managers from people I've talked to have always had a hard time proving their value. And companies are trying to put budgets towards proving how much that engagement can actually lead to dollars. One of the things I think is key here is that, sure, there's a lot of brands. Okay, if you're an enterprise SaaS company, you probably shouldn't go build community. But I do think there's a new form of hybrid company where community is aligned quite well, both with the incentives of individual people. They get to express themselves. They get to do interesting things. And it's also business alignment. Like totally. for us personally, people show up in our community. They show up in our events. Like we make revenues in various ways across all this. But like everyone sort of learns something, builds knowledge, et cetera. It's quite aligned for all people involved. This has come up for me a lot recently covering the no-code and low-code world because mm. each of those segments of the software space are building communities of developers that are tuned to either the no-code code world or the low code world, and they're doing actual work. I bring it up because I was talking to the CEO of Formstack yesterday, and he highlighted MakerPad in the no-code space as a particularly important community building this stuff up. So not only are our companies building it, they're also leveraging external communities. So to me, it really, really matters because the internet is too big to be alone inside of. You want some friends, you know, and you want some people to work with. And there's got to be lots of money to be made from that. Natasha, what were you saying? We see companies like Hop and Laz and Notion. So even the non-obvious ones, maybe Hop is an excuse, but even the non-obvious ones are all thinking about it in a more official way. So, I mean, Alexis Ohanian has been screaming it from the speakerphone for years. I'm sure he's happy to see there's some actual conversation around it. And if comms were successful... It'll be a huge win for community managers because they no longer have to be like, here's, please give me a dollar to spend on upgrading our Slack license. <laughs> well, look, there's a lot of community for community managers, but there are you know, a bunch of different like expertise and professions that need community, one of which is independent workers who oftentimes don't even have the community of their own companies to build upon. So apparently there's a new company called Contra, which is trying to build the infrastructure layer for independent workers to connect with each other. Natasha, you talked to them. What are they up to? My editor, Henry, hates when I do this, but I'm going to do it because it's the best way is Contra is a LinkedIn meets Shopify for independent workers. The core of Contra and Alex, I'm, I got you. Um, well, actually, Alex, tell me what you think it means before I give you the official definition. Okay. So I read Natasha's piece about this and I, I'm not being rude about her. I, I thought she did a great job with the news. They raised a $14.5 million series A led by Unusual. Cowboy was in there and Atelier Ventures, which we talked about the other week, not Atelier as I've been saying, um, or Atlier, Antler Ventures. Sorry, everyone, about that. But to me, the analogy of like X for Y, like, you know, it's the DoorDash for dog food. That I get. The LinkedIn meets Shopify. I can't. Am I too old? Is that what's no, going on? Okay. I don't think so, but it's a fair question. And it's not always the best way to describe a company. To me, it helps, but it doesn't have to help for everyone. Basically, Contra is giving independent workers, aka freelance people who join projects or product teams ad hoc, a place to showcase their roles and projects they've worked on and also get new work. So think of them as a professional network, aka LinkedIn, with a tab of that professional network being hire me for my services, aka Shopify, a storefront for your independent business, if you will. The last thing I'll do before I toss it to Danny, because I want to hear your thoughts, is the core of Contra is a bet on the fact that the professional world wants to move towards a project-based identity versus a role and company-based identity. If the world's ready for that, that's up for debate, which let's debate that. I've had a thesis 
like I think a lot of VCs that are like LinkedIn is like the biggest targeted product that you could probably knock out if anyone could come up with a better way to do it. Yeah. There are network effects. There's a reason why LinkedIn stays in place. There have been so many startups that have tried to do project-based, non-role-based resumes. Back five, six years ago, there used to be a lot of like vertical specific. I remember designers used to go to like Dribble and, you know, engineers and coders used to post things on GitHub and it would build out a, an engineering profile, right? And somehow I'm still using LinkedIn in 2021. I still get in-mail and nothing has come close to replacing LinkedIn at all. And so I believe in network effects. I mean, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. It just seems nuts to me that like somehow Contra has managed to like, I hope the best for them. And I believe in the space. My God, there's a graveyard of other startups that have gone after the space. This sounds like dating to me. There's no room in the market for new dating players that are sufficiently large because you need to have enough dating people to actually make it work. And then Bumble pulled it off and we were all very impressed, but probably there's not room for another one in the US. But what we talked about when we discussed those things was that there's more and more niche players and that people are turning to more targeted communities, if you will, to find a more wholesome and winsome place to be. And so maybe what Contra wants to do with its new Series A round is carve out not a mass market but really like the world's best product for its niche. And so then my only question is, are there enough people inside that niche to build a real company off of? Probably, maybe, but I can see how to monetize it. I can see how if you're not super up on LinkedIn, I have a LinkedIn. I don't use it much, frankly, it's fine. It just sits there. I can see where this fits in. Hiring is still a huge problem for startups. And I think if you don't work at Stripe and you don't have a big company, you do need to find a way to get through the noise. I mean, the real thing that will decide if Contra is successful or not, because if recruiters take it seriously yes. and actually come to them for work versus if they have traction in a super crazy way from the beginning. That could take a couple of years, but will people actually hire? But let's move on to my last piece of the week, which is the landing. And I'm going to give you guys another X meets X. Yes, it is. Canva meets Pinterest. Let's what? take our guesses on what that means. So for people who don't know, <laughs> Pinterest is where you go to get your anti-vax conspiracy theories. <laughs> Canva is less well-known. So Natasha, please tell the ladies and gentlemen what Canva is. Canva is a design tool to create pretty graphics, and I'm completely butchering it because it's a great business. But that's all you need to know for the landing. The landing is creating a social and collaborative way to design interior home mood boards. Ah. So similar to how Pinterest gives like aspirational food places for you to scroll. The landing is trying to do that for your interior design hopes and dreams slash your actual interior design plan. But unlike with Pinterest, where I, I'm finding things and I'm just pinning them into like little collections. Uh, when I was reading this piece, the landing looks more like I'm creating like a mood board or a goal board. I've actually done this with cutouts of newspapers and stuff. It's a lot of fun at the start of the year. Yeah. And then the idea here is that you're kind of showing off an aesthetic and then people can kind of click into this mood board and buy stuff. Is that fair? Yeah, people can click into it. I mean, the way I described it was monetizable mood boards because I think that you already do this informally when you're looking at your favorite influencers handbag or the coffee that they drink and you have this aspiration, you see it and you're like, all right, let me buy that. I think the landing is betting that the younger generation wants shopping to be a social experience. They want to meet random strangers on the internet, see their beautiful mood board slash interior design goals and shop from it. You know, they obviously have some competitors with heavy backing. House, a Sequoia-backed home improvement startup that had layoffs earlier in the pandemic, and Modsy, which has raised $70 million to date, are all kind of virtual redesign of their homes. And the landing, the news that we're talking about it right now, is that it just came out of stealth and it raised $2.5 million from Cowboy again. So we're seeing Cowboy show up a lot in these community rounds. So shout out Alien Lee. And Jamira Herrera, who is 
definitely been giving me a lot of homework recently. Apparently Cowboys just like taken over our, our podcast or something, <laughs> uh, but I'm very impressed with them and fun to see a VC firm with a real thesis put the money to work. Talking about interior decorating, one of the things you definitely need is an appliance in any new home. Oh no. Toast oh, no. or a toaster, I should say, for your toast. Toast. Is expected to IPO sometime later this year at what has been rumored as a $20 billion valuation. Boston-based company recently raised $400 million in February 2020 at a $5 billion valuation. What's nuts about this company, it's like the little toaster that could, I guess it's a little toast that could, or the brave little toast, is like, this has been a challenging market. Selling to restaurants is hard. It has been a slow growth story. It's an older company. But like, because of COVID, all of a sudden, a bunch of restaurants had to figure all these dynamics out. They had to track things. They had revenue growth of 109% over 2019. And so an incredible story coming out, which may be one of the best exits from Boston in recent memory. I just want to point out to everyone listening that we don't write transitions in the script. What we do is we just assign them and then we just freeform it as we go. And so all of that little toast that could, the toaster from hell, whatever Danny just did, off the dome. Natural. Well, I wouldn't say natural, Natasha. I, I would go with forced, but, uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was certainly done. Alex knows how to butter my bread. I, I do oh, no. indeed. I'm jelly about it uh, or something about oh, peanut no. butter. I don't know. I'm cutting this short. Okay. Let's move into the numbers. I'll never say that line again. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a long week of news. We, this is what your team is reduced Alex to. Alex is baked. I'm more broiled at this point. Anyways, uh, so, so Toast raised a bunch of money, went through layoffs early COVID. We all kind of wrote it off from the IPO books for a long time. Now it's raising a $20 billion valuation. We don't really have a lot of numbers other than what Danny said, which is that we do know it grew about 150, 120% in 2019. Okay, why bring it up now? Well, Olo, which is a New York-based restaurant tech company, is going public and we do have their numbers. And so what we tried to do, and we'll link to this in the show notes, was look at Olo and look at its performance and then kind of roughly think about what might've happened to Toast. And the short answer is Olo crushed it. They had an amazing 2020. So they grew from 50.7 million in revenue in 2019 to 98.4 in 2020, so nearly 100%. And they went from an operating loss of about 5 million in 19 to 16.1 million in operating income in 2020. So they nearly doubled, swung to profitability, started generating cash, and just saw their gross margins improve. So if, ladies and gentlemen, that is what happened to Toast as well. I understand its resurrection as an IPO candidate. I don't know if it's enough to explain a $20 billion valuation for Toast. That seems aggressive, but the markets have been wild. So you know, who knows what's going to happen? I think Toast is one of the great examples. If you don't know it, this market is so big. Square took a huge part of it. And Square has been an enormous success case for point of sale technology for retail and for restaurants. But Square just doesn't have the same functionality in terms of order operations, in terms of managing front of house, which means managing table orders, managing waiters, managing tips, and managing that whole workflow in the way that Toast does. And so Toast software, I mean, I've had to use it as an end user at the table, kind of a pain in the pain in the toaster, so to speak. But one of the things that's crazy is like there is this market where you can just be a little bit better than the incumbent player, which in my argument would be Square. And this market is so big that once people got used to Square, they're like, oh, well, we need to like manage these other things. My guess is there's actually a lot of Square churn to toast over the years as people got used to digital payments. And they were like, well, we need a few more features that Square doesn't offer. For sure. And one thing that Toast has done, and I'm just back on their website, is they've really built out their offering. So I think about them as the thing I swipe my credit card into when I'm picking up tacos at the store. But they do online ordering. They have a delivery bit of software. They also let you do payroll and team management. They're now into email marketing and they have a hardware business. So they're really quite a broad set of tools and products inside the restaurant space. And maybe that's enough to really have 
brought them back into the good zone. And the CEO in 2020 had said, we want to IPO in a couple years. The fact that it has been able to make that timeline grow shorter means, Alex, you're probably completely right in that something crazy happened. It's just crazy that before in the olden days, this would warrant an equity shot. And now we're just used to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how crazy things are. But I want to make an apology slightly to the Toast employees, because after Toast went through layoffs, Natasha and I used them as the example of COVID layoffs in like 88 stories. But Boston was always bullish on them. Even if we weren't, we, we did a, a legit story on Boston after and they were just like, Toast is going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. No, and to be clear, we weren't trying to be rude about yeah, Toast. Yeah, they were yeah, just yeah. this obvious, they, they raised money, then they fired a bunch of people. And so they were the obvious- like, COVID story. Yeah, they were the er COVID story. And so that, I feel a little silly now. It's like Airbnb. So talking about all the changes from COVID, I mean, obviously restaurants went through this whole cycle of like, we all had to move to delivery, but delivery didn't just apply to restaurants, it also applied to e-com, where e-commerce has just jumped all throughout 2020. And so one of the big rounds that we heard about this week was Shippo, that's S-H-I-P-P-O, raised a large round at a decent valuation. Alex, you had the story. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I've been covering Shippo for a long time. So I've been talking to its CEO, Laura Behrens-Wu, for, for years and years and years now. And, you know, we covered their round last year, which was a Series C. And the company raised $30 million at a valuation of either $220 or $225 million, depending on what data source you look at, but a healthy round at a nice up valuation. And then they came back to the well now with a new $45 million round at a roughly $500 million valuation. So they've doubled. And what's notable about this is a couple of things. One, D1 Capital led both the C and the D, which means they were willing to double down in less than 12 months at essentially twice the price, which means that they really liked what Shippo was doing. Shippo did say that their gross postage volume or GPV was up about 100%. Gross postage volume. <laughs> yeah, hold on, hold on. Postage adjusted EBITDA. <laughs> I, I knew that was going to come. It's the EBITDA you can deliver through the mail. It's the EBITDA that's always on time. Right. Two-day EBITDA. Okay, so the reason why I, I bring up their vanity metric is because revenue tracks with GPV. So we know they roughly doubled in revenue size last year, even though we all giggle at their acronym. And see, this is why we should do video again on the show, because if you could see Danny's face and hands right now, you would be laughing. He's, he's doing like the little thumb, two finger, like wave in the air in anger thing. It's delightful. And what Shippo is going to do is bake themselves into more platforms, do international expansion, and kind of work on their core user base. And I didn't say what they do. They help people get e-commerce shippers save a bunch of money on postage, essentially, by aggregating demand, driving big deals, and passing those savings along to their users. Moments before the show went out, we had another mail company, Lob, that would be L-O-B, raise funding, discussed by Anthony Haw, 50 million bucks for their Series C, and they focus on direct mail campaign. And so one of the things that's interesting to me is when you go into this, it's not just on e-com side, right? It's on the mail side, because all of the advertising channels are getting so filled with garbage, okay? Even messaging is getting filled. Facebook is a bunch of garbage, ads, displays, it doesn't matter, just like a bunch of noise. My inbox downstairs in my lobby is like the last thing left that's still protected. And now Lob wants to go after that. And so doing super well, they say they can execute a full mail campaign 95% in 90 days or less. So clearly more and more money going into mail. We have one more final story here around uh, a company that's near and dear to our heart, Phoenix. Yes, uh, Phoenix. <laughs> it has been a minute. So Phoenix this week did something cool. For people who don't know, Phoenix helps other companies create financial infrastructure to offer payments in-house. Instead of going to a company like Stripe, which is a soft spot for the company, they closed in on a 3 million SPV with more than 80 traditionally marginalized investors. So the move was made to bring some diversity to its cap table. How do we feel about this? I love it. The founder, Richie Cerna, is first generation Mexican. My mom is half Mexican. So this, this is kind of near and dear to my heart. 
I did get into a little bit of trouble on Twitter because I, I asked one of the people who put money into it. I'm like, was this at the same terms? I just hadn't caught up yet on the news. And people were like, why are you asking? And I was like, well, I, I'm a reporter. I'm curious. But I, I love the idea. I'm glad they're doing it. And also they're going to take 10% of subsequent funding rounds and allocate them to Black and Latinx investors. So they're going to keep doing this. This isn't a one-off stunt. This is something they're going to bake into their future investing. And shout out them for doing that. I love it. The important thing is it's not a favor to Black and Latinx investors to have them on a cap table. It's great to see allocation done in this way. I don't think I've ever seen it before, but it's, you know, it's still investment and equity and pricing and expenses. Danny, back in your time at GC, did you guys do this? I'm, I'm, I'm going to ignore that and just move forward. But I will say the Phoenix did have, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. So I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to move forward. Founders just, do that to me all the time. I, I'm, I'm just like, going to lob just a shippo into the toaster and try to make something happen on the landing. But um, two executive appointments, at least according to our notes here, Phoenix is definitely filling out his management team. So COO Fiona Taylor, who's formerly managed the Solar City IPO and was most recently at Marketa. And then a new CTO, Ramana Satyavarapu, was a founding member of the Microsoft Office 365 team and was head of engineering for Google Play Search. So clearly building out a bunch of executives. But I think that's the end of our show. We've covered a lot of news. I, we also cut, I think, 12 stories this morning because there was so much stuff going on. So if you cared about data and big data, which is that thing that people seem to care about, but no one does. Sorry, we killed it. We cut it out. And also the clubhouse stuff that was going to come in, gone. As a reminder, equity is now three times a week. We dropped a bunch of news earlier Ooh. in the week. We are going to be out equity Mondays, which is going to be our short show. We're going to be doing something thematic on Wednesdays. And of course, this show is going to be the same pile of news. It always has been. And uh, we will see everyone at TechCrunch Justice on March 3rd. And of course, TechCrunch Early Stage coming April 1st and 2nd, where I will be talking to Zoom. It's going to be fun. Danny, you have one more thing. You're raising your hand like you have one more thing. And that's our show. Bye.